1: Hello Weekside Podcast listeners and friends, I am Connor Orr alongside my esteemed colleague SI senior writer Jenny Vrentis and a lot happened this weekend, this was the weekend of Slime and Nate Burleson and the Saints and uh, a great uh, slate of playoff games where we saw Lamar Jackson come back and stun the world and and remind us of how good of a quarterback he is, we saw Tom Brady uh, playing well obviously, but uh, we're going to get into all that, Uh, But the 12 year old me needs to start with the Cleveland Browns winning their first playoff game in rebooted franchise history, their first postseason win since 1994, only their second trip to the playoffs since 2002. uh, And they just pummeled the Pittsburgh Steelers. It was a stunning display. And while Pittsburgh did manage to make that game close with a frantic second half, Cleveland started this game 28 to nothing without their head coach, without their best offensive lineman, one of their best offensive linemen, without their best cornerback. Uh, This was an unbelievable night. Uh, for the Browns, for their long-suffering fan base and their alumni. And it was also pretty stunning in general to see what a team can do when absolutely ravaged by, you know, the circumstances. I I was blown away by what I saw on, you know, recording this on Monday. I was blown away with what I saw on Sunday night.
0: Connor, when we were coming up with show topics this morning. The first thing I texted you was Browns bonanza because I was (laughs) so excited to hear your take on the game. We all know about the 12-year-old Connor Orr that invited all of his friends over to watch a Browns playoff game and thinking he would introduce them to the wonders of the Browns. That season ended not the way he had hoped for (laughs) and it had been a long wait. And obviously you do not root for any team, but you do have that memory and you have... Understood what the Browns fan base has been through through the years, which I think is a really, you know, neat perspective on what we experienced this weekend, and also with the Bills fan base too. I mean, yeah, these are two long-suffering uh, teams and fans who follow them in cold and you know difficult weather conditions, and so it was quite a breakthrough that both of these teams won on Wild Card Weekend.
1: Yeah, uh, during the game on Sunday, Jenny texted me, What is 12 year old Connor thinking right now? And I had to say, like, that, you know, that anything is possible. Maybe, uh, maybe we, um, maybe we will get asked to the Sadie Hawkins dance this year. You know, (laughs) maybe, uh, Maybe the it's not going to be, you know, uh, two or three or four or five asks for the winter formal. Maybe, you know, young Connor here is going to start turning some things around. And so uh, that's what I would say. It's like uh, I imagine, uh, you know, there's a, there's like a 12-year-old like me somewhere out there in uh, Ashtabula, Ohio, and uh, he's walking into virtual school feeling pretty froggy on, uh, on uh, Monday. So I feel <laughs> very good for uh, alternate universe, uh, young Connor. But I also feel good for for the browns you know i i understand that every roster is a fluid situation and that you can't really saddle a a, a current team with a previous team's baggage you know that doesn't really work but when, it go, when it's 18 years between playoff appearances and, you know, almost 30 years between playoff victories, you know, there does seem to be uh, sort of a cloud or whatever you want to call it that's hanging over the organization. And I think it took a lot of guts for some of the members of the Browns to finally stand up and to really back up, to display confidence in the face of these situations and to back it up. I mean, you know, when was the last time we saw the Browns sort of return serve when a team is trolling how bad they are. You know, Baker Mayfield posted on Instagram the Juju uh, Smith-Schuster quote, the Browns is the Browns. He posted that on Instagram before the game, you know, uh, know, on the sidelines during the game on Sunday, you had all the players doing the Juju Smith-Schuster TikTok dance and Baker Mayfield screaming Browns is Browns as he was coming off the field. You know, and it reminded me of, The story on the Browns, a couple, uh, you know, on Thursday about their past before the playoff game. And Chris Palmer, their first head coach back in 1999, told me that the first time they played the Steelers when he was their head coach, they had made a mistake and introduced the Browns themselves before the Steelers and uh, he he it, it came to him through the grapevine what an offense that was that how dare they not introduce the Pittsburgh Steelers first before the Browns like and this this was that franchise's kind of place in, in the NFL they were a second tier franchise they're laughed at and I was really impressed with the, sort of that emotional comeback where this is a team that's feeling confident when all other circumstances have led them to believe that through the years, they are just a non-functional, hard-luck franchise.
0: Yeah, and in the second half, when the Steelers started to get some momentum, they stopped the Browns on a couple possessions. They had some scoring drives. It looked like it might get interesting. The Browns didn't let the game slip away. After Mike Tomlin decided to punt on fourth and one, the Browns got the ball back and had a very... Quick strike, fast scoring drive, and they never really gave up. They didn't give in. And I think what you talked about, you're right, Connor, rosters do turn over, but you're in a building that hasn't had success, and there really is carryover. You know, there's this outside perception. Uh, the past mistakes or failures of the franchise lead to a even further criticism or critique of the current franchise. So that – that history, the players do bear that in their day-to-day careers. And so this really was the kind of team that had the ability to overcome it. And you spoke of the confidence. And that certainly was a reason that the Browns drafted Baker Mayfield is they felt like he had that swagger, that arrogance that would allow him to kind of forget or not be affected by this uh you know, your like past of the Browns and really overcome it, which ultimately they have. And the Browns is the Browns has become this rallying cry. And it reminds me a lot, Connor, here we go again, (laughs) of the 2010 Jets. Don't say it. (laughs) but It's true, right? So it became that... Same old Jets, which was similar to the Browns in that, okay, the same old Jets, they're always going to find a way to mess it up. Rex Ryan ended up flipping it on his head. They make the AFC Championship game two years in a row, and it became same old Jets headed back to the AFC Championship game. And honestly, like there are some similarities here of a team that was a little brother in a division, finally breaking through and you know, the Browns beat the Steelers, kind of similar how the Jets beat the Patriots in the playoffs of the 2010 season. So we'll see how far this Browns run goes. I mean, obviously the AFC is loaded with a lot of difficult opponents in in its final four teams, Um, but certainly the Browns are not going to be intimidated by anyone. And it's been a long time since we could say that.
1: Yeah. Wow. I mean, just to hear you say that, just like, it, there's a lot of times in 2020 and i guess by extension the rocky start we've had to 20 and 20 2021 where you feel like you're just in another universe and to hear like uh to hear you say that the browns are not going to be scared of anyone is just like one of those like what what <laughs> are you serious but uh yeah it uh it feels good i will say a uh, 12 year old uh, me very excited uh one of my uh Best friends, uh, Mark Sessler over at uh, NFL Network and the Around the NFL podcast was wisely. I think he had his phone off last night, but the ultimate Browns fan. And I had texted him several times throughout the game to no reply and then finally heard from him very, very early this morning. Uh, so happy for him and any other Browns fans that listen to the podcast. Good for you. Enjoy this uh, because you don't know. It could be another 18 years before we get something like this again. So uh, let's jump. Uh, let's jump into the topics. What do you think, Jenny?
0: Sounds good, Connor. Let's dive right into topic number one. Before we get into all the postseason fun, the Eagles have parted ways with Doug Peterson just three years after he won the franchise its first and only Super Bowl. For most of his tenure, Peterson seemed to have the pulse of the locker room, away with quarterbacks, and the easy stride of a man either always coming from or headed to the golf course. Now he is gone, possibly to make some late noise in the head coaching cycle. This all seems like a big disaster, no.
1: Do, do you want to tell do you want me to tell you what really bugged me about this like the yes. second the second this. <laughs> yeah not yes. to mention our bird teams are struggling yes. here oh God. yeah
0: yeah I mean we got the ravens at least but that's uh, true not, yeah. not a great week for bird teams.
1: Um, and, you know, the, um, like the second after he was hired, um, you know, or fired, but which the NFL network reported another NFL network reporter said it's Mike Kafka, right? That's the, uh, it's, it's the, it's the guy below Eric B on the, on the pecking order. Like that's who the chiefs are after. They're just, it's like, they just want, or the Eagles are after they just want another Andy Reid guy. And it seems like they're. A, not going to interview or maybe aren't as interested in Eric Bieniemy, which, you know, makes me mad for a different reason. But B, you know, I, I don't understand sort of the, you know, the lack of creativity here. And I guess C, I, if it's not Kafka, if I'm a head coach, I'm staying a million yards away from this job. This seems like, you know, this is an expensive veteran roster. Um, You're going to walk right into a quarterback controversy um, and have to answer a lot of questions about that. And your team just fired its head coach three years after he won a Super Bowl uh, and made the playoffs in between there. It's not like they were, missed the playoffs all these years in between. They just really had that one bad year this year. So I don't know. This does not seem like an attractive job to me. And if they are not hiring uh, another Reed guy, like they just have him on deck already, like I, I think that they're going to be pretty surprised at what the market returns to them on uh, during a coaching search.
0: Yeah, I think there are a lot of questions in Philadelphia, and among them are the circumstances of the split. Uh, reporters from NFL Network, also in Philadelphia, and ESPN, m- been reporting a strain between Peterson and Lurie and Roseman that he was given instructions on what his staff should look like. That led to an awkward situation last year where he said he was retaining some of his assistants and then ended up firing them after his end of season meeting with management. Um, So I think if you're a candidate, you look at this job and you think exactly some of the things you laid out, Connor. One is are you going to have autonomy? Is there going to be some input from the GM and the owner into every decision that you make, given the information that's trickling out surrounding Peterson's departure? Two, the roster is a total mess. And I think that has been one of the most stunning things that after the Super Bowl three years ago, it looked like they were set up to be contending for a while and. Ultimately, they resulted in what we saw this season, where they couldn't even win a hapless division. Uh, and the third thing I think is the quarterback situation. There's it's unclear what's going to happen with Wentz now. Peterson, if it is to believe that he did have a, a rift with Wentz, he, the organization letting go of Peterson indicates that perhaps there are higher odds of them holding on to Wentz. But you don't know where you're going. You had. You know, Hertz playing the last few games of the season. And you also, speaking of kind of where directions are coming from, we still haven't gotten a clear explanation of exactly who ordered the code red, essentially, right. in week yeah. 17.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I, it, I I, think all of this scares me, right? And to, to me... You had a relative. I mean, you had the Andy Reid era, which was the picture of stability. If you know, and, and they were kind of lacking in that ultimate success. But a lot of teams, you know, I mean, only one team every year can win the Super Bowl. But then you move on to the Chip Kelly era, which ended in basically uh, somewhat of a petty disagreement over power right and then right. now the howie, we now the doug peterson regime ends in what seems to be a petty uh, dispute over power and decision making and so you know it's weird where the eagles can vacillate so quickly between seeming like one of the league's stable blue bro- blue blood franchises and then all of a sudden you know, looking like a hot mess, you know, and at least right now, and and every team looks like a hot mess when they fire their head coach. But if you do it a week after everybody else fires their head coach, uh, you do it after a meeting between the owner and the coach, which would uh, signal some sort of uh, clear disagreement. And, you know, you find yourself way, way back um, behind the eight ball during the head coaching search. I I think all that is concerning unless – A, you have Kafka, and that's the guy that you want, and while I don't, you know, you say what you will about that, or you're comfortable waiting out, uh, doing what none of the other teams are going to do, and that's waiting out the Super Bowl and getting a coordinator from one of those teams and hoping that you can land someone like that. I don't know, maybe that's part of the plan as well.
0: Yeah. And since no openings have been filled, we've really only seen preliminary rounds of interviews uh, for the other job openings. Um, Well, some of them have gotten a little bit further with toward in person meetings, but none of the other jobs have been filled yet. So the Eagles do still have their pick of candidates, but even in 2016, as you referenced, the end of the Chip Kelly tenure was there was this kind of strife as well between the front office and the coach and I remember coaching candidates at that time being wary of the Philadelphia opening. Now that, of course, seemed silly a couple of years later when they win a Super Bowl and it looked like they were going to be in a good spot for a while. That looked like that might have been the premier opening, but I think ultimately that assessment at the time in 2016 was right. You can never take away a Super Bowl. That's a fantastic achievement that everyone who was there will always have on their resume, but. Then you go three years later, and Doug Peterson is out.
1: Yeah, and and to be clear, you know I don't think Doug Peterson was perfect either. I, you know I think if he, I, I think if you look at any of the offensive statistics outside of that Super Bowl year um, and outside of the time that he had all that great coaching power at his disposal, Frank Reich, um, John Filippo you know, all those guys in the room, um, they did not have a top 10 offense in any of the years where any of those guys weren't all together. And so you could make the determination that maybe that had something to do with it. And, you know, there did certainly seem to be some in-game puzzling, in-game decision-making, you know, uh, some sort of scattershot decision-making there. And if He was being ordered to do some of this stuff, which I hope we find out now uh, during the fallout of this process, tanking and benching Wentz and doing all this stuff. Then he really didn't do that great of a job selling it. And it reminds me of when the Giants fired Ben McAdoo, one of the reasons that they did it was because, you know, everybody wanted to kind of move on from Eli Manning, but Ben McAdoo was not able to sell it to anybody. You know, he was really bad at coming out there and saying, this is why we're going to do it. And I th- and, and really didn't understand, I think, how to do it in a way that would make everybody happy. And so, you know, some coaches just aren't made for that portion of the job. And, and maybe the Eagles are looking for something else, but I don't know. I, I yeah. still think they're going to have a hard time finding it.
0: And I think those points are good, Connor. Uh, really, that offensive staff the year that they won the Super Bowl was a three headed powerhouse. Uh, well, uh, more than that. But it's, you know, definitely Frank Reich and DiFilippo Filippo working with Peterson. And uh, they had not been able to replicate that success since. Uh, also, I feel like the Eagles had. That year, such a strong veteran-led locker room that was able to kind of direct and lead itself in a way. Um, so, if they had questions about Peterson's leadership that have surfaced over his five-year tenure, that that okay, fine, that might be valid. But then that also calls into question this report about them wanting to go for Kafka. Okay, obviously every coach is their own person; they all have different styles, but. The Peterson hire seems to be a transparent attempt to recreate the Andy Reid era Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, and then you're going to just try that again? That doesn't seem to make sense, and it doesn't seem evident that they have a clear direction in mind other than trying to recapture a bygone era.
1: Which, as we know, is just, you can't, the past is the past, everybody, you know? The only thing you have is the present. So make the most of it. Um, Connor, all right, are you, we
0: dangerously close to you using salad days?
1: <laughs> Halcyon days.
0: Halcyon days. Okay.
1: I, I did get it back. And I will say that um, in the absence of so uh, for listeners who aren't aware of the backstory here, I used the phrase Halcyon days in so many consecutive columns that our editor, Mitch Goldich, banned me from using it for a calendar year and actually set a Google a calendar alert for the day that I was allowed to use it again, uh, which uh, did kind of come and pop up. And I'm I'm situationally gauging where I need to sprinkle that in. But in its absence, picked up a lot of other ticks, like uh, I've been using the phrase fever dream a lot in in print, which is... uh, well, I, I, that might be indicative of the year. I, I don't know what it, what it is, but I think we all have our phrases that we like to lean on. But, yeah, Eagles, you can't go back to your halcyon days. That's, uh, that's important to remember. But news topic number two, speaking of a team in its halcyon days, Lamar Jackson rewrote a playoff narrative on Sunday in Baltimore's thrilling win over the Titans. While this was not Jackson's best game from a statistical standpoint, I think, and Jenny, you wrote a great column about this. It does finally help remove the wool over the eyes of some of the remaining numbskulls who believe he is not a force to be reckoned with uh, during the playoff process.
0: Yeah, this was a narrative-correcting win for the Ravens on a lot of levels. Perfect, Shelby. <laughs> On point, as always. We, we have a bird win to report this week, so that's always good news for our ornithological enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Lamar Jackson at the ripe old age of 24 wins fir- his first playoff game. The Ravens, having lost to the Titans twice in the last year, beats Tennessee in Tennessee. They fell into a 10-0 deficit and won the game. Marquise Brown was the leading receiver. So there were a lot of kind of storylines that have cropped up through the year. And I I wrote this a little bit in the column, Connor, and I liked how Lamar Jackson handled the questions about the narrative. He didn't just dismiss this. As ridiculous as it is to say that a quarterback in his third season who became a starter midway through his rookie year has only lost two playoff games in a team sport – as ridiculous as that maybe to home in on that record of his, it did bother him too. You know, he has grand aspirations of winning a championship. He was the MVP last season. That was a stunning defeat that really shook him. And he wanted to keep their season alive to make, you know, turn what happened last year into some kind of different outcome this year. And so he said, all week that he wanted to change the narrative. And I really liked how he went directly at it. You know, he wasn't saying it was ridiculous because to him, maybe the narrative itself was ridiculous, but what underlied it was not. The fact was, both of those losses ate away at him. And so he devoted all of his energy to winning a playoff game. And The way he did it was exactly what we need to see from Lamar Jackson. It was the perfect combination of him using his legs to make plays on the ground, but also using his legs to make plays in the passing game. We saw that on the Ravens' first scoring drive after they fell into the 10-0 deficit. They had a third down. The Titans sent Adoree Jackson to blitz Lamar Jackson, and he outran him and was able to get a pass off that kept the drive alive. They ultimately scored a field goal and got things moving a little bit after a bumpy start. So I-, I thought it was an impressive performance. I had a few people sending me the box score and saying the Titans defense was bad and this wasn't that impressive of a performance, but I really disagree. The Titans are a tough opponent. It is a now apparently a very uh, heated rivalry, Connor. And I, like I thought this. Lamar really answered the, the challenge well.
1: Yeah, and I think what is going to be hard for people to digest, and I think that a lot of people, to be honest, and we can agree on this, are not going to want to digest this fact that, the quarterback position is changing. It's changing for the better. I think that your cover story on Lamar Jackson, which I th- I encourage people to go back and read um, from a few months back uh, from our football preview issue, uh, illuminates that quite well. But we are so used to, and, and fantasy football might play a small part in this too, we're used to judging quarterbacks on the scale of, okay, did you go 25 of 30 for 368 yards and three touchdowns and no interceptions and a perfect quarterback rating? But that's... That's not football anymore. It's just not. You know, that that kind of quarterback doesn't really exist anymore. And to be honest, that kind of quarterback is quickly running out of favor with a lot of teams. Guys like Lamar Jackson change the math. They make things better uh, and easier for offensive coordinators because of all their skills and the different things that they can do. And, you know, if a guy has 170 passing yards and doesn't have a passing touchdown, that doesn't mean that he didn't take over the game, you know, and that doesn't mean that the other team wasn't having fits preparing for him. Because I can promise you that every single word or every other word out of the Titans mouths that week were probably Lamar Jackson. And how do we stop him? And, uh, you know, he still finds a way to uh, to get rushing lanes. He still finds a way to convert first downs. And uh, to me, he's just an incredible young player. And I, I'm, I'm really happy that he got that win.
0: Yeah, that 48 yard touchdown run really seemed to take it out of the Titans defenders. You could see some just kind of gave up pursuit because they weren't going to catch him and the way he just kind of cut across the field on a diagonal toward the pylon is is really impossible to defend. And, yeah, the defense did play really well. The Ravens defense was did a excellent job. They didn't allow themselves to get run over by Derrick Henry. Um, but all of that is to say the Ravens are looking like a pretty complete team and uh, are in a better spot this year in, in the playoffs than they were last year. So we'll see what happens
1: gamblers take notice jenny was hot on the ravens weeks ago if you were listening to the to the weekside podcast you would have known that by now hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price Priceline. line i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal each week you're here in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal making across sports media and entertainment
0: that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't
1: want to do another stomp you out speech. It
0: opened so, up so many more doors.
1: You know, the show is called The deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, what do we have for uh, news topic number three?
0: All right. Big Ben season ended alone, contemplative on a bench Sunday as the Browns celebrated their long-awaited postseason victory. Roethlisberger will be 39 before the start of the 2021 regular season and looked with regularity like a guy running out of steam this year. He has loudly contemplated retirement in the past. May this have been it for Big Ben in Pittsburgh.
1: I don't think so because the ego is such that I don't think it will allow him to go without uh, some... And and I'm, I'm just not talking about Ben Roethlisberger in general, but I think a lot of quarterbacks of that era without some whiff of you know self-importance and you know uh and the story being about you and how great you are and you know I, I i think i think he might be the kind of guy that hangs around for that which is dangerous for pittsburgh because that contract is expensive and it's hard to get out of and um you're gonna have to get creative with the way that you find uh roethlisberger's replacement which you need to really you know hop on pretty quickly
0: interesting connor uh, i thought his comments after the game were interesting when he said he would want to be back if the Steelers would have him sort Mm -hmm. of putting the ball in their court, which was a unexpected framing. He clearly has a deadline coming up. There is a, I believe $15 million roster bonus due Mm -hmm. in March. So they will have to make a relatively quick decision, but it was hard not to look at this team down the stretch and think that Roethlisberger was really holding them back. His physical gifts have really diminished over the last few years. We heard all spring that he was coming back better than ever after elbow surgery, but the truth is he looked like a quarterback who was getting up there in age. And that skill that he once had where he was so able to extend plays and it was difficult for defenders to bring him down and – You know, you always heard about from defensive backs who were covering the Steelers' offense, plaster rules, and you would have to stick with the receiver forever in the down because Ben could always keep it open or or keep the play alive until somebody got open, excuse me. And as his mobility has diminished, that special aspect of his game has really gone away. And the offense just felt so limited. And I will say that, it was a bad time for everything around him to also go downhill. You know, the play of the line has dropped off from its peak. He doesn't have top skill position players around him the way that he did, you know, when there were the, the triplets uh, in Pittsburgh and or their version of the triplets. And so it all kind of came together that the hot start to the season was a mirage and they really kind of limped to the finish.
1: Yeah. And, you know, outside of outside of how good Sam Darnold might look in black and gold, I don't really know what other options they have. You know, they're a good team. They're a well run franchise, which uh, which means that, unfortunately, you can't pick high. You know, you're not going to be in a position to get an affordable successor right away unless you want to take a shot at the end of the first round or you want to sacrifice a lot of capital to move up. And yeah, it's just uh, the whole situation is just I mean, we've talked about this a million times. It's that delicate balance. It's that Eli Manning decision where, you know, you ride this thing until the wheels fall off and then you're left with an inevitable period of bottoming out. And but but the end, unless you're you know, somewhat superhuman like Tom Brady seems to be, or at least really good at picking your destinations and your spots, um, you know, the end never really seems to justify the struggle. You know, the Giants were never able to maximize the end of, uh, of Eli Manning. The Chargers were never able to maximize the end of Phillip Rivers. And yeah, Pittsburgh had a really good season this year. They were at one point, you know, on the, on the, on the steam path to get the number one seed. But otherwise, it's just, you know, you don't ha- really have anything definitive to show for it um, other than, you know, a nice little run and, uh, and a good season. But uh, I don't know. Now you're really behind the eight ball, I think in developing the guy that you need to play as early as, you know, starting in a few months from now.
0: Yeah. And the last four seasons, you know, this year they lose in the wild card playoffs, missed the playoffs. The last two seasons losing the divisional round to the Jaguars in the 2017 season. So, it hasn't been, the results haven't been great the last few years. To your point, Connor, uh, they're sort of seeing the toll, I think, of perhaps hanging on too long to Roethlisberger.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what the right answer is. I, I think if he were able to, if he were to make a stink and sort of create a Farvian situation for you, um, I, if you're if you're the Steelers, you might have no choice but to back away. Uh, you, you're, you're considering the rest of your roster. You do have a dynamic group of young skill position players there that you really want to foster and and get them used to a more functional style of play. Uh, you know, you made a great point. You can't have, you know, a woolly mammoth back there shedding tackles and keeping deep routes alive forever. That's not a sustainable style of play and it's not a realistic style of play in the NFL right now and so I don't know they need to kind of move on to that era and and make the most out of that for their guys but I, you know who knows these things are always the the deeper you get in the uglier I think uh, the inevitable breakup becomes.
0: Well Connor they could always trade for Deshaun Watson which yes. leads us into our next topic
1: I love it the Deshaun Watson, Watson Watson oh my goodness wow Um, let's leave that in there this is a teaching tape for the for the <laughs> um, this is a this is a look behind the scenes at Connor not being able to pronounce uh, an easy word. Okay, news topic number four. Here we go. The Deshaun Watson situation in Houston has gotten ugly. After the team asked for his input and ignored it on the general manager hire, Watson's camp seems to have returned serve with rumors of a desired move to the Dolphins and the waving of a no trade clause. This feels like it will get uglier, much uglier, before it gets better. In simpler terms, Jenny, what in the H-E double hockey sticks is going on in Houston?
0: That situation has really come to a head over the last week. Connor, in December when Greg Bishop and Gary Gramling and I wrote a story about Jack Easterby's rise to power in Houston, it was, at that point in time, unclear what Easterby's future would be in the organization. Uh, he seemed to be from people who had talked to him that we included in the story also unsure of his future and wondering if changes were coming. Cal McNair had said that Easterby would not be part of the general manager search, but they would ask his input on candidates he was familiar with and that the new GM would decide what Easterby's role is moving forward. Then fast forward to this past week where he's, on a plane with Cal McNair to pick up Casario from New England, the candidate that they'd zeroed in on two years ago. So what we have now is Easterby is seems to be an entrenched part of the leadership structure moving forward. And it happened quickly, it seems the hiring of Casario. And so it's understandable that perhaps Deshaun Watson was kind of confused by the twists and turns because it did not seem to be a linear hiring process. And I think the issue comes, if your quarterback is not involved in the head coach or general managing process, that is fine. That is normal. Generally, quarterbacks are not super involved. But in this case, Cal McNair told watson he was involved he said it publicly he did seek watson's input early on so you can understand why watson would have been blindsided and then also unclear about sort of these shifting changing alliances power structures whatever the case may be in the texans organization
1: yeah i and you know as a as an aside like this is this Gambit is just so freaking unoriginal. Like, you know, Patriots guys just hiring more Patriots guys and this is not working anywhere else. Like it's just not it's, and it's stunning to me. Like, yes, Brian Flores is having a good season in Miami. um, But Brian Flores is his own person. Uh, And he has a general manager who never worked for the Patriots and a coaching staff with not a lot of guys who came from the Patriots. And the same can be said for Mike Vrabel in, uh, in Nashville. He's his own guy. He's building his own team. Very different from the one in new England, but you know, the idea that, oh, well, none of the coaches worked out, but Nick Casario is the secret sauce behind all this. It's definitely the GM who, you know, and let's look at this team's history of draft picks. I mean, this is not exactly the uh, the Seattle Seahawks from 2010 to 2015 here. You know, it's not like I don't know what what, what exactly is lighting the world on fire that uh, made this such a slam dunk hire in the first place. So I don't blame Watson. I think a lot of this is frustrating. You, you know, you don't ask, don't, you know, uh, you always have uh, sort of the Those funny arguments with your friends or or maybe a a spouse or a loved one when they ask your opinion on something and you tell them, well, you know, I would maybe like to go here for dinner, but you know, they want to go somewhere else for dinner. They just want you to say that you want to go to that place for dinner. And unfortunately, that wasn't what Deshaun Watson was doing. He had his list of guys. He and and he had even said, you know, or it had been reported that it wasn't just him, you know, he took the res- the time to go to his teammates and to find out who they would like too. Yeah. you know? Um, and you know, he felt like he was sort of a delicate for that locker room and it's gone completely ignored. So, Is trading him for Tua Tungavailoa going to help fix that? No, because you still ignored 51 other guys that are using uh, Deshaun Watson as a conduit to speak with ownership. And so I think this is just continuously bottoming out in very interesting ways. And it's stunning to me because the organization is reportedly headed by a character coach and it doesn't seem like, you know, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but it doesn't seem like a whole lot of character being uh, displayed here at the top of, uh, at the top of the org chart there.
0: Yeah. And I think Watson's comments at the conclusion of the Texans season were pretty telling. He talked about there being no foundation to build on. And what then happened was they sort of continued to, build on the ruined foundation that Watson seemed to be alluding to and so they had an opportunity to start fresh to consider all candidates they'd gone down this Patriots approach before Uh, Bill O'Brien was the head coach and it seems like they're just continually trying to grasp at the same straws And now you come into a situation where it feels incredibly unlikely that Watson could be a quarterback somewhere else. But you also have to fix this situation. And you can't waste Watson's prime years, which is the comment that J.J. Watt made to Watson while walking off the field following the final game. It was picked up on... uh, NFL Films Mike, I believe it was, where he said, basically, we wasted one of your years. And I think that's a common sentiment around the Texans is Watson is a special talent. And he's been through a lot of turbulence already in his young career. And it would be really sad if the Texans can't get it figured out. And really, this starts with ownership, Connor. Anytime you see problems like this in an organization in terms of hiring procedures or trying the same thing again and again, rather than reconsidering your approach or you, he- anytime you hear your star quarterback, a draft pick that you absolutely hit on saying that there's no foundation that's on ownership. So this is a reflection first and foremost on Cal McNair.
1: Yeah. And, and gosh, like we've done, um, uh, we've done in various degrees through various years, um, you know sort of these joking posts and and podcasts about educating owners on on how they should run their franchise but it is just continuously amazing to me that so many of these people are titans of American industry and can't run a, a football franchise. Like, you know, the simple human to human basic components of a job are just so out of their grip. Uh, and it's just stunning to me. And so, you know, uh, I, I feel bad for Watson. I hope he gets out. Uh, I feel bad for, you know, anybody who is sitting there kind of toiling and wasting their prime, uh, on uh, an organization where the, you know, everyone at the top just seems to be wanting to prove a point instead of win football games. So here's the hoping that uh, here's the hoping it does work out. Although I don't want to see Tua have to go to Houston then and have to deal with that too. Here's hoping they get no quarterbacks out of this. They have to play. They have to play with like the week 14 Broncos, like just no quarterbacks for the entire year. You don't get to ruin anybody's prime.
0: <laughs> well, Connor, this sets us up nicely for our last topic because there are, teams that are still alive there are eight teams that have made it to the divisional round which is a place that some of these other organizations in chaos have not so (laughs) we're gonna make some picks playoff football continues with a full slate of games on saturday and sunday not as large as the wild card slate but a full slate nonetheless connor let's do picks
1: all right where do you want to start uh i have let's go
0: chronologically
1: Okay, I like this, and now you know what I also like um, is that uh, both of them. I like when it moves to you know there's a four thirty and an eight thirty, um, but I don't like the Sunday where it's a three thirty and a six thirty. You know same, what I mean? I like same. the four thirty and the eight thirty. You know, you ha- you have the whole morning, you know, especially since we're not traveling uh, right now and we're doing all of our interviews and reporting virtually. I like the idea of you know having a full day, getting a nice jog in at the park, maybe. Putting a dinner in the crock pot as our editor Mitch uh, had uh, revealed to a lot of his Instagram followers over the weekend, a really hearty turkey chili recipe <laughs> for Mitch um, over the over the weekend, which was good for him. It looked delicious. I made uh, chipotle uh, chicken meatballs with uh, corn slaw and a little sriracha. It was very good. Um, but it gives you the opportunity to kind of set the whole day up, and then, bam, you get you get to end the night with football, which I love. Um, you know, not so much on Sunday. Sunday, 3 o'clock is sort of a compromising hour. You know, it's not late enough, but it's not <laughs> early enough. You know, I don't know. But anyway. It's just um, weird.
0: I just find the 3 and 6 p.m. slots disorienting
1: I, I agree i totally agree um but so let's start with the four thirty-five on saturday that's for our eastern time friends uh for our hawaiians that's uh 11 35 in the morning for you guys so uh the rams at the packers wait uh, a
0: second i think it's 10 35
1: is it is I it six so. hours
0: yeah i have a friend alex who lives in hawaii and i think it's six hours
1: Alex, uh, can you do us a, Alex? Can you do us a favor and tell us uh, the time difference in a review in a five star review for the Weekside Podcast? Just make sure that uh, you you do do the five star review and then let us know uh, what the time difference is from Hawaiian. That's the best way to get in touch with us, uh, just in case you guys didn't know. Um, so uh, whatever time Hawaiian, uh, four thirty five Eastern. Rams. No, at you know I think, I think
0: you're right, Connor. I think I'm wrong. <laughs> I think it's currently ten thirty or ten fifty. well we're, we're recording this it's three fifty-four. i swore at one point i wonder if the daylight savings time is uh mm. things shift but regardless let's uh let's keep it moving
1: <laughs> if you find yourself listening to this podcast and you are an expert on hawaiian time again leave us a rating and a review and uh just sort of educate us on how everything works out there but Uh, Rams at Packers, Uh, my guesses were uh, probably in alignment on this one.
0: Yes, I'm going with the Packers. I thought the Rams had an impressive performance. They really seemed to use the Week 16 loss to the Seahawks to fuel them, basically saying Okay, so you won the division, but what really matters is the playoffs. Defensive game plan was fantastic, as has been the case for the Rams all season. And Jared Goff really was impressive. You know, wasn't deemed healthy enough to start by Sean McVay, but he ends up in the game after John Walford gets injured and was not a perfect performance, but also his thumb was far from perfect as well. And he, you know, did enough for the Rams to win, but in this game it's hard to pick against the Packers who are the NFC's best team.
1: Yeah. They just look totally complete at this point and just really destructive. And while we saw that first little glimpse of the Kyle Shanahan offense, uh, being able to take a hit, uh, with the Titans losing to the Ravens on Sunday, I don't see that train slowing down with Matt LaFleur and all the weapons they have there. I think that's uh that's a done deal. Um, this one I'm really interested in hearing uh, your take on the eleven and five Ravens at the Bills of Buffalo in Orchard Park at eight fifteen on NBC. Uh, who do you have there?
0: I find this one difficult to pick, Connor, but I I can't go against the Ravens. It's not just because they're a bird team. I just have this feeling that they. Um, they really have hit their groove late in the season, and the bills have too. I mean, the bills have been on quite a roll. but um, what the Ravens didn't seem to have last year in the playoffs was the confidence to be who they were in the postseason. and I, the win over the Titans, they really reversed that. They, they were exactly what they needed to be to win. And so that just gives me confidence heading into this game that they, you know that they'll continue that.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I So I, I, you know, everyone know who listens to this podcast knows I've spent the year getting harassed by Bills fans via direct message because I picked them to go 7-9 and at the beginning of the season uh, and and to miss the playoffs. I think I had the Patriots and the Dolphins finishing ahead, or maybe the Patriots and the Jets, which is even worse, finishing ahead of them uh, in the division. And so I in, in the redo picks that we did uh, for the MMQB uh, last week, I did pick them to go to the Super Bowl maybe in an effort to make amends for that. I don't really know what I was thinking at that point. But, you know, I'm going to stick with the Bills here uh, because I think they're just slightly, slightly, ever so slightly more of a complete team. But the problem here is there's not the built-in coaching advantage like the Bills had last week. You know, we saw how... How much better Sean McDermott was at just laying the game out, using his timeouts, um, you know, effectively controlling all the pieces on the chessboard over Frank Reich. But John Harbaugh is uh, just as good, if not better, at at stuff like that. And so it's going to be a really interesting matchup. Uh, It's going to be a lot on Josh Allen with that amoebic defense that Don Martindale has there. But I'm going to stick with the Bills here. I'm just uh, maybe out of some sort of uh, uh, long apology that I've been, uh, I guess, delivering to... Bill's Nation here for the last few weeks. So, I don't know. That's what I'm doing. Uh, Sunday, January 17th, 3.05 Eastern on CBS. The Browns at the Chiefs. Uh, Who do you have for this one? Chiefs. Yeah. No. So... It's interesting. Just as we were uh, uh, talking about the Browns and the disrespect and all that stuff, I did uh, happen to check uh, my news feed while we were recording this podcast. And Chase Claypool said it doesn't really matter that the Steelers lost the game because the Browns are going to go into Kansas City and get clapped. That's what he said. So uh, so he uh, he is already projecting that they are going to get clapped. Uh, which I, I guess means beat. Uh, that would that would be my uh, that would be my guess. Um, but I'm going to go with the Browns. Uh, I am going to go with the Browns. I'm going to say that the surge of momentum somehow carries them beyond this. I think that the Chiefs, while unbeatable in a large portions of this season, um, are susceptible at times to teams who can create a little bit of pressure and uh, and and kind of slow down what they have going on there. I don't know. I mean. The, the, at some point we're in for a complete and total stunner. And maybe that was the Browns winning that game with no uh, head coach, but some team, weird team is going to go on a run. A weird team goes on a run every year. And I think it just, maybe it's the Browns. Who knows? Maybe this is a, the end of 20, a fitting end to 2020 where the Browns actually upend the, the top seeded chiefs there.
0: Yeah. And it's not as intimidating to go into Arrowhead this year, as we've talked all season, there isn't, a home field advantage in this weird pandemic year, uh, unless there's some kind of weather conditions, like Green Bay would be one example. But uh, yeah, it's hard to pick against the Chiefs, so I'm I'm sticking with them, Connor. But I do think this will be and has the potential to be an interesting matchup.
1: Okay, and then the 6:40 p.m. Eastern hour uh, again, Jenny. Just uh, just having a lot of trouble here planning when I'm going to have dinner between the 3:05 and the 6:40. Uh, we have Buccaneers at Saints. And uh, this for people who know me, probably a matchup of two teams where if I could pick no winner uh, and that both teams get disqualified from for some uh, horrible uh, violation of the rules and they opt to just give the next team that uh, a buy into the uh, into the divisional or the conference championship, that that would be my ideal outcome uh, that that neither of these teams make uh, the next round of the playoffs. But if I'm gonna have to pick between one of the two I'm going New Orleans and the two reasons are I think New Orleans has the advantage on the pass rush front, I think that they're going to be able to get after Tom Brady. And yes, while the Buccaneers have a good defense and Drew Brees is stationary, they do have the Taysom Hill uh, wrinkle that they can throw into games if that gets messy. They also have Jameis Winston sitting on the sidelines, who, while you know, maybe not the most talented guy, could win them a game if they needed to, you know, get something done there. So I just think that the Saints have more cards to play. In this game, and uh, I think there are some cracks showing a little bit uh, in the foundation of that really good Buccaneers defense.
0: Yeah, I think those are all fair concerns. I mean, the wild card round game between the Bucks and Washington was tighter than most of us expected. But I have to say, Connor, at this point, I'm kind of leaning the Buccaneers. I think that the way their offensive line held up against a really strong Washington front was encouraging for them moving forward, especially since that matchup between the Bucks' offense and the Saints pass rush seems to be what the game will come down to. Brady was sacked three times by the Washington front, but really had a clean pocket other than that for most of the game. I thought they did a really nice job of handling Chase Young. I watched a lot that matchup between Young and Donovan Smith, and he seemed to really kind of push past the pass rusher, making him take a longer route to the quarterback. And so uh, their ability to hold up against the Washington front, I think, bodes well. So at this point in time, I am leaning Buccaneers, Connor, but I want to reserve the right to change that pick. Our official MMQB picks are not due until Wednesday, so I'm going to mull this this over a little bit. I'm going to give myself a little wiggle room.
1: I, I'm I'm happy for you, and I I love I love the idea that uh, like you're creating a new genre of pick of picking, which is great. Which is here's my pick right now at this moment, but it's Monday, and uh, give me a break. Maybe I change mean in it a couple is days. Monday. I, I love it. I love it. I think you're taking the power back when it when it comes to uh, you know uh, you know all of us being analysts and being forced always at a moment's notice to pick games, you know, especially during the season, if, if you do radio hits, if you're doing picks for the website, if you're doing other stuff that you're writing and I, there's probably been times where I've picked both teams to win and I don't even know about it. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm very happy for you that right. you're, you're, you're laying the groundwork for taking the power back. I think that is a uh, wonderful, wonderful thing.
0: Glad I have your approval, Connor.
1: Not that you needed it. Uh, But, okay, we are going into the Oracle, and this is one that I feel pretty good about. Um, I come into some weeks uncertain whether uh, my of the whim predictions are going to come true, but um, I will say that after the success, the smashing success of uh, Sunday's Nickelodeon televised matchup between the Bears and... And the Saints, we have found a new niche for these networks uh, to really build the most out of their ratings. And I think it's going to be the start of some really fascinating niche programming. And I think it's going to be great. Like, if you think about all these networks that own NFL rights, like if you're NBC and, you know, you have whatever, USA and all these other things, you know, you have Sunday Night Football on NBC, and then you have CAF captain craigen and olivia benson and the team from law and order svu calling the game on usa or you have you know if you're uh, associated with lifetime or hallmark or bravo you have all these reality stars sitting at home watching the game on zoom and commenting on the game and i think that you could bring in an entirely new generation of fans like we've all been At events where we're not interested necessarily in the game, but what the people have to say about it or our friends have to say about it. And I think this Nickelodeon thing is a window into all sorts of interesting football related possibilities and programming.
0: I love that. And I think your take on the game was really great. It really made me think. And anyone listening to the podcast should read the column that you wrote on Sunday about how. The Nickelodeon broadcast sort of reminded us to appreciate football without the hubris that is often associated with it. All of the takes that have some agenda behind them, all of the, uh, you know, expectations that you know every nuance of every defensive scheme and the arrogance that people have in shouting these facts over you. I just thought it was really, really smart uh, explanation of what the Nickelodeon broadcast taught us. And I enjoyed it. It was. It was a nice diversion, it was more casual, it was, it was a little was bit so more nice. fun, and it was the perfect way to intersperse, or the perfect, uh, I don't know, intermission of sorts in a six-game schedule. I mean, I thought Wild Card Weekend was a little long, Connor. Yes. Six, you know, six, out, six games, uh, noon or, you know, 1 p.m. to midnight every day, that's a long time. So it was nice to have an afternoon game on Sunday that felt a little lighter.
1: You know what it's like, and I can't imagine how horrifying this scenario be for you personally, knowing that uh, Jenny uh, and I did a podcast called Bad Football Movies a couple of years ago, and Jenny had revealed that um, committing to watching a movie with someone is, is a really, you know, it's a terrifying thing because <laughs> if it's a crappy movie, you're locked in, right? You're you're on the couch, and there's nowhere <laughs> to go, and, you know, nothing else to do, and it's a really terrifying thing, but Wild Card Weekend reminded me of... Um, you know when some friends suggest oh well you've never seen star wars let's watch the entire thing over the course of a weekend or lord of the rings and you're like okay yeah this is going to be great and then halfway through it you're like god this sucks you know uh i can't i can't watch miss trubisky anymore i just can't do it uh and so i thought the nickelodeon broadcast was great because it was it was a palate cleanser uh there was a lot of slime which i thought was good and lex lumpkin the kid's sideline reporter, what a star in the making there, uh, Lex Lumpkin, which uh, I thought he did a great job. But I love the Nickelodeon broadcast, and, yeah, uh, yeah, I you know, Jenny summed it up well, but I thought it just uh, – and I'm guilty of this too. I think we take ourselves way too serious. I think I take myself way too seriously sometimes. I think that my attitude can sometimes close off the game to fans who are looking to get in uh, and to understand it better and i think that on the flip side you know there's a lot of people who make the game inaccessible to fans by the way that they criticize players or insert their own personal opinions uh, and you know uh, whatever you know that 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 gets a lot into it but to watch players get slimed and to watch drew Brees's face get changed into a hamburger before commercial break was just nice it reminded us of how silly all this stuff really is
0: yeah couldn't agree more. And we'll just gloss over the fact that you insinuated that I have commitment issues, which is not untrue.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> we can head on to the next segment, Mo- Connor. <laughs> movie commitment issues. That's why. That's why. You're not wrong, Connor. It all comes full circle back to the fact that <laughs> I struggle to make pop culture references because Jenny cannot lock into a movie. And that's totally fine. <laughs> it's okay. It, that's, I, I bet you're going to get a lot of fan appreciation mail from that i think there are a lot of people out there with the same uh with the same disposition
0: Mm, yeah i do think that is true connor (laughs) what's uh
1: what do we have on tap for the Vrentus consensus today consensus
0: on sunday night politico reported that donald trump plans to award bill belichick the presidential medal of freedom on thursday this comes, Connor, of course, days after the deadly assault on the U.S. Capitol by Trump's supporters, which followed him urging them to fight against the procedural electoral vote counting to confirm Joe Biden's victory in the presidential election. Statements from defense officials showed that Trump was not involved in the employment of the National Guard to stop the insurrection. The president also stated that same day that he loved the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol and called them very special before finally a day later condemning them and their actions. The D.C. Attorney General said his office is considering possibly charging Trump and others for inciting violence when they spoke at a rally to the crowd that would go on to storm the Capitol, and House Democrats on Monday introduced an article of impeachment for incitement of insurrection. So these are all of the events that surround this invitation that suddenly popped up, for Bill Belichick to accept the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Trump. And last week, on a day after the riots at the Capitol, Annika Sorenstam and Gary Player were among the golfers that accepted the Medal of Freedom. Sports figures do regularly receive this honor, and this is not about whether Belichick deserves it. Rather, it's about this being an attempt by Trump to distract, deflect, to call on his perceived supporters at the darkest hour of his presidency, we remember that Trump had read a letter Belichick wrote him in advance of the 2016 election at a campaign rally. He has, at other times, spoken of their friendship. What is missing to this point is the facts of how this came together, the timeline, how, when, why. It's also unclear at this point if Belichick will accept the award, and the Patriots have not commented publicly. But Connor, there should not be any deliberation. Belichick should not accept this award. I could say something about how how will he answer to the people he leads on the Patriots if he should choose to accept this award. But it's really much bigger than his role as a football coach. It's much bigger than what goes on in a locker room or on a football team. It's far beyond that. Belichick would not simply be accepting the Presidential Medal of Freedom, he would be allowing Trump to use him as an ally as lawmakers seek to remove Trump from the presidency because of the risk he poses, even in just what is now a handful of final days. To stand beside Trump now would be to participate in his efforts to avoid accountability, to essentially turn a blind eye to the events of last week. No award or apparent friendship should be valued more than the tenets of our democracy, which Trump and his supporters have sought to undercut
1: think it's a great point and I I I I agree with what you said I think uh, Tom Curran also um, had a nice uh, piece on this as well and want to make sure that um, you know I give I give that credit as well but it it's very clear that what the president is doing is using Bill Belichick as a pawn and I think that if you're Belichick and I you know it's not my job to tell anybody how to feel about anything but you know you're from a Naval family, Academy family. Uh, you have a deep appreciation for this country and for uh, its history and for, you know, I mean, David Halberstam did his biography. And what did he agree to? That he could a- talk to David Halberstam about Vietnam if, if David Halberstam could ask him questions. You know, this is the kind of guy that Belichick is. And I think that the Presidential Medal of Freedom... Uh, is something that's deeply meaningful and would be deeply meaningful to him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe he doesn't see it that way, but I think the rest of us see it as a clear ploy to divert attention from what's going on. This is something that the president, I think both sides of the aisle can agree, has done with regularity throughout his uh, th- throughout his tenure in the office. And I-, I just think it's sad. Like, I think Bill Belichick, maybe it does deserve the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I mean, we've seen people across... Um different walks of life get it he is the greatest head football coach in NFL history and I you know I think that there's a lot of nice things that could happen um for him I think he could have a great time I'm, I'm certain that another president would probably bestow that honor on him at some point but uh, the circumstances here feel just murky to me at best I mean you're gonna go in there during articles of impeachment um you know and 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 maybe he's that steadfastly loyal to the president. I don't know. Uh, You know, Bill Belichick uh, gets to avoid talking about a lot of this stuff, unlike a lot of other people who are forced to kind of reckon with some of their uh, politics publicly. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. But I think it would be a horrendous decision. And I think it I think if I were him, I would take that as an insult. Because again, I think that that would mean something to him and his family, if it were done under proper circumstances
0: yeah absolutely the presidential medal of freedom is a tremendous honor it's given to somebody i'm reading from the description now who has made an especially meritorious contribution to the security or national interests of the united states world peace cultural or other significant public or private endeavors and so a lot of sports figures have been honored with that and it would be something that would be a highlight of your career but if you're belichick you would wonder why is it coming up now And I agree that it is an insult for it to come up only under these circumstances, uh, essentially ruining the opportunity to receive an award simply for the merits that you have uh, or the qualifications that you have for the award. So um, it will be interesting to see what happens in forthcoming days. But uh, uh, that was a, a initial report from Politico that was a little bit of a stunner that was dropped Sunday night during the playoff games.
1: Yeah, interesting how you know it all comes out. I mean, you know why it comes out, uh, but I don't know. I I'm going to be very interested to see what Belichick does. I know that clearly in the past with his letter that he wrote, that uh, really his su- political leanings and support, he doesn't care what anybody else thinks uh, about it. I don't think that he has the same fear as other coaches in having to answer to a locker room uh, to some of these guys maybe by virtue of his previous success and maybe this is just something he wants to roll with but i think that that's uh, that's going to be a big part of his legacy that then he's going to have to tussle with and um you know it's it's been a complex legacy at that to begin with so i'm uh, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what he decides to do later this week
0: yeah well this was uh, lots to cover in this episode connor from coach firings to Moves by the president to some exciting playoff games. We'll have a lot more to discuss next week. As always, thanks to all of our listeners. The MMQB Weekside Podcast is me, Jenny Vrentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Moravik is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed. And while you're there, please leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts.